Well, a very good evening to all of you. Um, we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 8 this evening that we just had read to us. So if you can have that open in front of you, it will really help. It's quite a long um, passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at. Uh, we're going to work through it and we're going to conclude the story of Gideon tonight. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we do ask again that you would help us this evening. We ask that as we open your word, you will reveal your truth to us, that you will speak it clearly to us. Help me as I preach, Lord. Help us as we listen. Help all of us as we meditate on these things. And Lord, please work changes in us to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, just as a word of preface, because it's lovely to have the young people with us, it's Easter holidays now, a word of preface to the book of Judges is you need to think of Judges, and you probably picked up on it as we had this reading, that these are the kind of stories you tell around the campfire. You know, there's, I like to think that the person who wrote down this collection of stories was probably the, the prophet Samuel himself. And I love to think of Samuel sitting down around a campfire with the boys, and he's telling the boys like horrible histories kind of stories and teaching them lessons from these wonderful stories that we have here. Gritty stories, to be sure, uh, fairly explicit stories, uh, but really fun, actually. And I think there's, you're supposed to see a bit of humor in there. You're supposed to be shocked. There's an emotional roller coaster that goes on here as we read through these stories. So please bear that in mind uh, as, as we read through this. Just to give you a flavor of it, let me recap from what happened last time. Uh, we've had that wonderful victory. Uh, we've had Gideon with his 300 men against countless armies of the Midianites. And the big battle's about to happen. It's the middle of the night, and Gideon with 300 men surrounding over 100,000 Midianites. He surrounds them all with his torches inside jars, and then they smash the jars on the trumpet call, and everyone shouts, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And you've got to imagine it being like a great theater, surrounded, the lights switch on suddenly, the spotlights on the stage, and God acts. And God's people stand there like an audience, watching this mighty victory. And uh, as Gideon gives chase to them, have a look at, you get a flavor for what the book's like in those last verses of chapter 7. Just have a look at those last couple of chapters. From verse 24 there, halfway through verse 24, the last paragraph. So all the men of Ephraim, and they're going to be in the story tonight, were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the Rock of Oreb. Uh, I assume it got named after him after the event. Uh, and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. You can picture it happening, can't you, with them coming with a bag of heads to Gideon. <laughs> it's a great storybook, isn't it? Well, let's have a look at what we've got here in front of us in chapter 8. Let me start by asking you the question. Have you ever wondered, especially those of you who are a bit older, but it's good to be thinking about these things. Have you ever wondered what it is about churches and church movements, if you're aware of them, that means that they are constantly failing and falling apart? You notice that? That's what happens to church movements, isn't it? They pop up and they fall down. Things seem to go so well to start with in many of these Christian movements. And then before anyone 
has time to do anything about it. Suddenly, they're blindsided, and things come crashing down. Revivals come. They last a short while. You hear of stories of thousands being saved. I'm sure they are. A few decades later, no one left in the churches. Incredible. Uh, and it's not something modern, and it's not something particularly uh, you know, Western either. History is, is full of this. Uh, I was really, really struck. My, uh, my wife did her medical elective in Turkey, and we got to know a bit about Turkey. Turkey has less than 0.3% Christians today, Turkey. Now, why is that, why is that staggering? Well, because there are so many churches that Paul himself planted in that country, in Turkey. Isn't that incredible? Uh, and it was at one time the heart of the Christian empire, Turkey, with I Istanbul. Incredible. And yet nothing now. Virtually nothing there. Think of the hundreds of church movements that have come and gone just in the last few centuries. Th think, actually, of local churches, maybe. Those of you who've been living in the area for a while. Local churches you've known. Many of them either closed or a shadow of what they once were. Uh, you talk to older members of those little congregations, and they'll tell you all about the church in its heyday, when people were packing out the churches, and there was standing room only, where they had vibrant you know, youth ministries and, and all sorts of stuff going on. Why does it happen? Well, there's a number of reasons, and we can't cover them all tonight, but there's, there's obviously one common denominator, and that is people. People are the reason it happens. That's why these things fall apart, isn't it? People. The church is made up of imperfect people. It's made up of sinners. People, and often leaders as well, who are sinners. That's what churches are made of. See, the sad truth is that usually it's God's people themselves who end up doing the destructive work and tear their own works apart in the end. Isn't that sad? Well, this is the third part of the continuing saga of the life of Gideon. And we've seen, just to recap very quickly, this, this man who's really, to start with, a nobody, the least, the youngest son of the least family in the weakest tribe, and that's rubbed in for us. We've seen this man chosen by God to become a deliverer, to become a hero who will rescue his people from the big bad, from the Midianite hordes who are coming year after year and just stripping the land of everything in it. In the first part, we looked in chapter 6 uh, and saw God gently nurturing and coaxing this reluctant young man, Gideon, to get him up to speed, to get him into action. And he's, in that chapter, he's full of questions and full of doubts. But God takes him and prepares him for the great work of leading his people into battle. And we learned in that chapter that God can use whoever he wants to do his work. It's a good lesson to learn. And that faith, big lesson from that chapter, faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed, is all that's needed as long as that faith's in the right object, as long as you put it in the right place. And remember that lesson. It's not about the amount of faith that you have, is it? What matters is the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of God and his great power. Then in chapter 7, we saw Gideon with his 300 men taking on that army, too vast to count. 
And we learn the lesson there that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness as Gideon's army stripped down to just 300 men. For all appearances, you know, going through that, what, these wonderful stories so far in these first two chapters, it does, does seem like God's people are going through a pretty good period here, aren't they? Up to this point, everything's on the up with God's people Israel. It's all going very well for Gideon, isn't it? He's growing himself. He's becoming the instrument that God has called him to be. He's becoming God's man. This nobody, as he started out, is becoming a great leader, a name to, you know, to be reckoned with. But now as we turn our, cha- our attention to chapter 8, everything seems to, to change. We're on the downgrade again, as always happens. We reach the summit and we're going downhill. Because like so many of the great and heroic characters of the Bible, like Solomon and Asa and Hezekiah, Gideon does not end very well. You probably picked that up as we read through it. And in this chapter, which describes for us his decline, and with it, the undoing of God's people yet again, I think we can pick at least three clear lessons about the kinds of things that are highly destructive amongst God's people, the church, even today. And that's what I want us to to have a look at tonight. Here are three things that cripple God's people, that, that stop them, stop us from being effective in the calling that God has given us, in our mission, in our work in God's kingdom. Three things that will cripple us, that will be destructive. And the first one is this, is people who are critical. That's what you'll see in this chapter. It's criticism. Critical people. Secondly, it's people who just won't take a risk, ever. They just want to play it safe all the time. And thirdly, pride. Pride amongst God's people. Specifically here, leaders who are affected by pride. We've got to watch out for these three things that we're going to look at in this chapter. So let's start with the first one there. People who criticise. I had uh, started a new job in youth ministry uh, back in 2007. I was working for a large Anglican church and I was about six months into the job. And... uh, I was still trying to find my way as a leader, very, very new to this kind of, this kind of ministry. Uh, when I got um, a call from some concerned parents asking me if I would come round so that they could have a talk with me. And I arrived at a, a, well, I can only, it's, it's a large house, a really big, imposing house called Candlemas, actually. <laughs> Don't look it up. <laughs> and I was escorted into a lounge where both parents sat me down. And they told me about their 17-year-old daughter who did not like my youth ministry. That's what they wanted to tell me. Actually, after talking about why that might be and having them tell me how they thought I should be doing the youth ministry, after, after a while they admitted, look, actually, she just doesn't like you. Well, I was sort of a bit dumbstruck. There's not a lot I could do about that. I told them I was very sorry about that, but I was persuaded that the way I was doing things was the right course of action to pursue. I was going to stick to my guns, and I wasn't about to change my personality just because one teenager didn't like me. I left for home feeling so deflated. Criticism is a very destructive force, isn't it? You know, we like to pretend that we're thick-skinned, that it's water off a duck's back, but it's not. 
It's like treacle off a duck's back with most people, isn't it, criticism? And it's something that good Gideon knew very, very well. We left off in chapter 7, uh, and Gideon has the Midianites on the run. They're fleeing before him. He and his 300 men surrounded that camp at night. They smashed their jars. The result is mayhem. God fights on their side, and the Midianites are fleeing in terror. And now they must pursue the leaders of their enemy and remove the threat for good. That's where we pick the story up. And Gideon sends word to the tribe of Ephraim. We read about that, didn't we? One of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says to them that they're to cut off the Midianites as they try to cross back, cut back across the River Jordan. The Ephraimites, we just read it, they capture the two Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb, and they butcher them. They put two new landmarks on the map as they butcher them. The Rock of Oreb, the wine press of Zeb. Where would you like to go for dinner tonight, darling? I'd like to go and eat out at the wine press of Zeb, please. That little place there. Uh, and then with great relish, it seems, they bring Gideon the severed heads. So he gets this bag of severed heads landing at his feet. And it's here at the River Jordan that they bring their complaint to Gideon. They've got a criticism. Have a look with me at verse 1 there. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? <laughs> why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticised him sharply. Now, what's going on? They're confronting Gideon and they're basically saying to him, why didn't you consult us before you went on this campaign, Gideon? How, how dare you initiate the first move against the enemy without coming to us first and seeing what we have to say about it? Put simply, Ephraim are, are glory hunters. They're the leading tribe. Doesn't Gideon know that the last really great leader of the people of Israel, Joshua himself, was an Ephraimite? We're a big deal, Ephraim. Who does Gideon think he is? Charging off without them. Now, that's not a very nice thing to be confronted with, is it? Imagine what Gideon's feeling here. Put yourself into his shoes. I know how I'd feel with that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you'd feel the same way. I'm, it, I'm sure that in Gideon's place, I would have come up with a few choice words to say back to this lot, wouldn't you? You know, actually, I don't answer to you. I answer to God. He told me to go. If you've got a problem with it, you go and take it up with God. He's the boss. And anyway, who do you think you are? Till I got involved, nobody had ever had the guts to do anything about the Midianite problem. All these years, we've, we've never seen you guys take any action. And, you, and now you come out to criticise me. But in actual fact, Gideon shows remarkable self-control in what happens next. Do you see that? Having taken, according to verse 1, sharp criticism, Gideon answers gently in verse 2. Look at what he says. He says, what have I accomplished compared to you? He starts, he's quite gentle, isn't he? You're great, you guys. What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? Uh, God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared with you? He really butters them up, doesn't he? He says, guys, what you've achieved is so much greater than what I've done. All I did was to get a few guys to blow some trumpets 
You've put two new landmarks on a map. Look at you. You've done a great job. And look, you've brought me these two lovely heads. <laughs> really, you shouldn't have, I guess. <laughs> and that gentle answer turns away wrath, doesn't it? That's wise. It's actually good wisdom here. He answers like a humble and godly leader. And the resentment of Ephraim actually does subside because he's handled it pretty well. But where does it leave Gideon? And I think that's what we have to chart through this chapter. Let's try and get under Gideon's skin for just a second. When God's people should have been rejoicing that their enemies have been put to flight, instead, Gideon's been challenged and sharply criticised. Instead of rejoicing, he gets criticism. All he was doing was obeying God and putting his life on the line. It's pretty, pretty serious stuff, isn't it? He's done it for the for the sake of the very people who are having a go at him now. And a seed of bitterness, I think, is sown at this point. The resentment of Ephraim might have subsided, but Gideon, Gideon is starting, I think, is starting to stew here, just a little bit. Critical words, you see, have great destructive power. We're going to see that plotted out throughout this chapter. That, that little seed of criticism left unchecked, it often grows and it blooms in our hearts until there's full-blown resentment there, doesn't it? Have you ever felt that? People have been so critical to you and you just nurse that resentment. You never deal with it. Leadership is hard enough without people criticising and thinking only of themselves, seeing, seeing things only from their point of view, which is often what happens. Leaders have to deal with that. And we've got to beware the tendency to do this. See, Ephraim, they were definitely hands-on kind of people, weren't they? Practical people. They're people that got involved. They certainly weren't people on the fringes that just sat back and let other people do all the work. Have you ever met people like them? Very involved. Key part of what's going on in the church. But they're critical. You know, they're really involved, but they're just, they're just critical. The leaders, are, the leaders are never quite doing things quite the way that they would do them or want them done. The heart of that is pride. Because what they're thinking is, if only they were consulted about this, well, then things, are, things around here would, would run so much better. Now, look, look, we're all a bit like this. I, mean, I guess that's the way most people talk about the government most of the time, isn't it? If I was in, you know, in power, it would be so much better. You know, I, I had an apprentice uh, once, I had him for a year, and at the end of the year that he was with us, uh, he took me out for a meal uh, for a sort of debrief at the end of, um, end of the time he'd been with us. And it was the most weird and surreal uh, experience. He sat me down, and he told me everything he thought that I'd done wrong over that year in dealing with things. And I asked him back if it had occurred to him that as pastor, I might have more information than him about some of the things he was talking about. I might have been able to see the bigger picture. I might actually know some details that I wouldn't want him even to know because they're confidential. And some of these things might have affected my decisions. It's hard, isn't it? What stops God's people in their tracks? What discourages them? People who criticise criticise, and especially people who criticise, and you can't even explain why you're so upset with what they're saying. If they have a problem, they don't just give gentle, constructive advice. 
they'd rather go straight to the criticism. People who can only see things from their own perspective. You need to be aware of that. It cripples God's people. The second thing that cripples God's people is found in verses 4 to 9. And, and it's an interesting one. It's people who won't take risks. People who are just not risk takers. That's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? You know, an abiding memory of doing my PGCE, that's my, my training to be a teacher, uh, was writing endless lesson plans. Anyone who's done teacher training, you'll know how painful this is. But one particularly painful aspect to this mind-numbing task for design technology teachers like myself is risk assessment. Got to do serious risk assessment. You've got to, you know, every tool in the workshop, every activity with that tool has to be assessed to show that I've thought through all of the crazy and creative and insane ways that a child could injure or maim themselves with said equipment. Now, having said that, I do see the merit of doing the exercise. It makes you think about some of the things that could go wrong. Someone needs to, you know, to, to stop the the over-enthusiastic from being too over-enthusiastic with the tools. Or to stop those who, by nature, might overreach themselves in what they do. Someone needs to help people to think more soberly about what they're doing. Risk assessment is a good thing in schools, believe me. And it's a good thing in the church as well. We don't want to be doing stupid and thoughtless things, do we? Because we haven't thought it through. But total absence of risk usually means nothing gets done at all. And it can be a crippling influence amongst God's people, total absence of risk. Let's pick up the story again in verse 4. Just have a look at it with me. Gideon and his 300 men, verse 4, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They're worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. Gideon and his 300 men, they've been in hot pursuit for miles. You can imagine how tired they are. Exhausted. They're on foot. The enemy might well have horses. We know they had a lot of camels, certainly had tons of camels, don't they? didn't they? Like the sand on the seashore, we're told. Uh, Gideon and his men are exhausted. They're running to the end of their energy reserves. And having crossed the Jordan, they come first of all to the town of Succoth and then to Peniel. And they stop at each of them to ask for provisions so that they can carry on with the work that they're doing, the good work. And both of these towns respond exactly the same way. Did you pick it up in the story? In fact, according to verse 15, they taunt him. They taunt him. Uh, look at verse 6. The officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zebra and Zalmona in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? See what they're saying? Gideon, we're not getting involved. Frankly, we think you, you're probably a little bit mad, and you're a lot dangerous, Gideon. Look at him with his little troop of 300 troublemakers chasing the thousands of, of Midianites. A, Gideon, you're not going to be able to do it, and B, when they find out that we gave you supplies to even have a go at it, they'll come for us. We're not taking the risk. If you want some bread from us, you've got to first of all show us you've succeeded in your mission, that you're a safe bet. Show us the hands of those two Midianite kings. Then we can talk. Defeat Zeba and Zalmunna first, then we'll help. 
No hands, no bread. Here we see God's people refusing to take a risk, refusing to support God's work unless, first of all, it can be proved to be risk-free. Risk-free. See, risk requires faith, doesn't it? That's really what it requires. It requires a trust that God will act if we obey. And conversely, faith itself won't really grow without taking risks. So you're kind of stuck there. Bad enough that Gideon's been criticised and misunderstood by Ephraim. Now he's got to be taunted by these idiots, these play-it-safe kind of people. You can imagine what's going on in Gideon's head as we're progressing through this. He's, he's, hit, he's facing blow after blow, isn't he, to him? You want a risk-free life. Yeah, we'd all like that. You can imagine him responding that way. We'd all like to have a risk-free life. I'd like to be back at home threshing my wheat in the wine press. Why don't you try taking a, a walk in my shoes for a change? I can imagine the anger is starting to rise. It would be with me. Gideon is not so composed, actually, this time in his response. Just for that, he says in verse 7, when the Lord has given Zebra and Zalmona into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. That's a different response, isn't it? I don't know how you do that, but it sounds very painful, doesn't it? He gets the same response from the next town, Peniel. And you don't want to mess with a tired, annoyed, extremely hungry bloke who's got his sword out. Verse 9, the Bruins paraphrase, you total swines, right when I get back, I'm going to kick that tower in. That's what he says to Peniel. Gideon's a man who's at the end of his tether, isn't he? He's a man who's had enough at this point. And you can understand why. Perhaps you've seen people like this in the church. They're the ones who are constantly pulling on the brakes. It can be very frustrating. People who never want to do anything that might rock the boat or change anything or make anyone feel uncomfortable. There's all of that. Now, you do need people in church that consider the issues, that flag up the problems with possible plans. We need that. But a church full of people who won't take risks is never going to be going very far. We're to be a people of faith who walk by faith, not by sight. And faith only grows when we take risks. If you want a church full of people who are growing in their faith, who are confident that God is with them, that he does great acts of salvation, you've got to take risks. You'll find that you grow very quickly when you take risks. Risks, risks are the fertile soil in which faith grows. That's the truth. Succoth and Peniel Christians are the kinds that will, that will never really give support or resources to anything that isn't 100% risk-free and analysed to death. The people of God are, are weakened and damaged by those who criticise and by those who don't take risks. But I think it's most badly crippled by the third thing here, and that is, in verses 10 to 35, it's pride. It's very interesting to see where this goes. It's especially leaders who are proud. Well, this takes a number of forms in Gideon as we finish off this story. His pride has been wounded, hasn't it? His ego has been bruised. He's trying to get a job done, 
and everybody seems to want to mess with him. No one wants to support and encourage him. He's not getting any of that. And as the rest of the chapter unfolds, we find that he certainly won't let go of a grudge either. And we get a sense that he's been operating with mixed motives all along, actually. He's a complicated man from the start. So after initially keeping himself in check with his exchange with Ephraim at the beginning and, and put, pouring oil on troubled waters there, a hot temper is starting to surface in Gideon. Gideon and his men catch up with the enemy. They win another staggering defeat, bringing the total of fallen Easterners to 120,000 swordsmen. But he wastes no time in thanking God or even reveling in the, in the victory. It's fairly quick, rapid fire here. Look at verse 13. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Heres. He caught a young man of Succoth and he questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. You know this isn't going anywhere good, do you? Fresh from the battlefield. Without even stopping off home to take a shower, change his clothes, Gideon just grabs a passing succothite and forces the young lad to write down the names of all the important people in that town. And then with great satisfaction, he pours out his vengeance on those who taunted him, whipping the elders of Succoth with desert thorns, probably to death, bashing in the Tower of Peniel, killing the men of that town, verse 17. Gideon's losing it. No one will recognize what he's achieved and what he's trying to do. And, and things are starting to take a really bad direction. Then he turns his attention to those Midianite kings he's, he's captured in verse 18. Have a look at this. Verse 18, he asks them, what kind of men did you kill at table? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, sons of my mother, as surely as the Lord lives, if you spared their lives, I would not kill you. See, he's been holding on to something. Something's been cooking, hasn't it, in Gideon? This is something that's been driving him all along. He's got his own personal vendetta coming to the surface here too, isn't it? They killed his brothers, and now he's got their throats in his grip. He's going to make them suffer. Gideon's seeing red. It's all a vicious blur of bloodlust, really, unfolding in the chapter. How can he make them really suffer? Verse 20, turning to Jetha, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jetha did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. He's trying to humiliate these kings, maybe knowing this is going to be a much messier way to meet your end. Gideon turns to his, his young boy and asks him to kill them. Right there, cold blood. Well, the boy freaks out, he can't do it. Kings realize it would go much better and quicker if they can goad Gideon, Gideon into doing it himself. So they do. Prove yourselves, they say in verse 21. And he does. In a way, Gideon is a bit of a mixed bag, isn't he? It's, it's a pretty horrible story, actually, the end of Gideon. True enough, for all of his flaws and weaknesses, and even with his mixed motives, he's still an instrument of God's salvation for his people. Strange, isn't it? This is, this is the man God uses to save his people. He struggles with deceptive pride. He's got some serious anger issues. But he also understands the grace of God and choosing him, giving him all the victories that he's won. It's, it's, it's 
such a, a confusing thing, isn't it? He's very like us, actually, very like us Christians. Think about it for a second. Don't be too quick to judge Gideon. It's worth remembering that the Bible gives us a summary of Gideon's life in just three simple chapters. I wonder what your life would look like in just three simple chapters. What would be the highlights for you? Like Gideon, the account of our lives is a struggle with all sorts of sin in our hearts too, isn't it? Yet all the time, at least intellectually as believers, we're, we're aware of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in forgiving sins, rescuing us from the punishment we deserve. And like us, you know, Gideon is just another sinner living under God's grace. He's a flawed man. It's very interesting to see what happens next. It's not good. In verses 22 to 28, we see that the people offer to make Gideon a king. They want to make him more than just the next judge. They offer to give this office to his family, his sons and his grandsons. They offer to give him a dynasty. But Gideon refuses. Well, that's looking good, isn't it? If Gideon's learned one thing, it's that God's in charge. It's not him who's in charge. You know, a little while back, I helped uh, another one of our apprentices at, at Cornerstone with getting his flat sorted out. His wife was, his new wife, was due to uh, move in in the next few weeks. The wedding was, was looming. And uh, the upstairs shower needed some serious attention in the flat. And I found all of the bits for Tom on eBay. Uh, he ordered them, and I came over, and I, I sorted out the job for him. Now, I'd worked with Tom for a couple of years before this. I knew him quite well. He can be a little bit odd. But when all was sorted out, he didn't say thank you to the wrench that I used, even though that wrench had been used for most of the work. He may not... Uh, even have said thank you to me, but let's assume that, that he did. Why? Because I'm the one who fixed his shower. The wrench is just the tool that I used. Do you see the difference? Gideon knows, like all of us should know too, especially those who, who lead, that in all he's achieved, he's just been the wrench. He's just been the tool God's used, and that God has done it all. So he's learned that lesson. And when the people offer him the kingship in verse 22 there, on the basis that, as they say in verse 22, you have saved us out of the hand of Midian, he knows that's wrong. He's got a gut instinct about it. He can't accept the kingship. He knows that. He doesn't want God against him. The people should give the glory to God, the God who used him. But... Here's where that conflicted character pops up again, because he's such a conflicted man. I mean, isn't it about time he got some recognition? Everybody's been against Gideon, giving him a hard time. Shouldn't he get some recognition? Verse 24. Have a look at this. Verse 24. I do have one request, he says. Each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It's the custom for Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder into it. Gideon comes so close to a good end, doesn't he? It's starting to look quite positive. But he, he messes up right at the end here. Why? Pride. He knows that God must be king, 
But his proud heart would love to get as close to being king as he would possibly dare. There's a bit of ego in there and pride, isn't there? Look at the evidence. First, he gets himself a little harem going, because that's what kings do, verse 30. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. That's an understatement, isn't it? And because there's always room for one more, because kings always have room for one more, he also had a bit on the side, we're told, who lived in Shechem, whom I assume he inadvertently got pregnant and had son number 71. There'll be more about him later. That's the first exhibit, the way that he's living his life. He's living like a king, isn't he? Second thing, he names his illegitimate son Abimelech. Now, if you know what the, word, what the name Abimelech means... It's, it's a subtle one. It means, my dad's the king. It does Ab, Ab, like Abba, and Melech, the king. My dad's the king. So he's got an illegitimate son living down the road called, my dad's the king. Yeah? And third, with his 20-odd kilos of gold that they've given him in this cloth, he makes an ephod. An ephod is is the breastplate that the priest wears. Jewish high priest wore an ephod, and it was studded with gems, and it contained two stones called the Urim and Thummim, and they were used for decision-making for the people of God. In effect, Gideon sets up his own kind of mini temple. God is king, yes, but if you want to know his will, come to my town. And they did, we read, verse 27. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there. And it became a, gid a snare to Gideon and to his family. Leaders. Whether it be a Bible study or children's work or music ministry or teaching from the front. We've got to be aware of these things. We've got such deceptive hearts, haven't we? Gideon got the recognition that he craved. Do you crave recognition for the things you do? I'm sure that Gideon persuaded himself that he wasn't really doing anything wrong. But the cost of his pride was very high indeed. Have a look at verse 33. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals, the false gods. They set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of their enemies on every side. See, for a time, the focus, the spotlight fell on Gideon. And no doubt he reveled in it. He got his little moment of fame. But that moment of fame took the focus off his heart. And rather ironically, he was quickly forgotten. They didn't remember him. Verse 35, look, they failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. It was soon lost to memory. The land had peace during Gideon's rule, but once Gideon had died, the land never again had peace during the period of the judges. You know, it's funny, there are a few, few characters in the Bible that do end well. There's a lesson in that for us, isn't there? And hardly any of them are kings. Virtually no kings end well. Seems the saying is true. Power corrupts 
And absolute power corrupts absolutely. But the seed of it all is in our hearts, isn't it? If the lesson of Gideon teaches us anything, it teaches us just to, to beware our own hearts, doesn't it? The snare of sin in our hearts. What we need, what people need, is a king who knows how to handle authority, who really can reign well, who won't be driven by irrational anger, who won't be mastered or corrupted by the ugliness of pride. We need a king like that, don't we? And there is, of course, such a king. His name is Jesus. He's the only one. And he asks that our attitudes, the way that we live and think about ourselves, and the way that we act, should be the same as his. We had these words this morning, actually. Listen to them again here from Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look, look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at, but made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, because of that, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, he is the king without equal. He's the God who became a man, the king who to serve his people got down on his knees, the king who took all the jeering and taunting of wicked people without any retaliation back, like a sheep before its shearers. The king who carried his own cross to his place of execution and was butchered for the sake of those he loved, for our ruined hearts, for our hearts full of sin. He died for us. Instead of bringing vengeance on the heads of his enemies, he offered salvation, eternal life to you and me. And he offers the same today to all who will put their trust in him. And if you've never done that, do it. Why would you not do that? Put yourself under the good king, the great king, the king who will never fail. Don't follow critical self-glory hunters. Beware of them, lest you discourage and embitter those who are doing God's work. Don't be a discourager. And don't follow those who are afraid to take risks, which will make you trust more. God's kingdom won't grow without risks. Don't follow those whose hearts are full of bitterness or anger or pride. Instead, follow Jesus. Follow him. Let him be your example the servant, the saviour, faultless, perfect king.